This is Hemant Mehta for the Friendly Atheist Podcast. Jessica will be back soon. But for today, I'm really excited to be able to speak to someone I think you're really going to like. Caroline Mala Corbin is a professor at the University of Miami School of Law. She teaches classes involving the U.S. Constitution, the First Amendment, the Religion Clauses, the Free Speech Clause, Feminism, the First Amendment, Reproductive Rights, and all sorts of things like that. Her scholarship focuses on the First Amendment's speech and religion clauses, particularly their intersection with equality issues. It's everything listeners of this podcast care about. By the way, if you want to support this show, you can go to patreon.com slash friendly atheist podcast. Professor Corbin graduated from Harvard for undergrad. She got her law degree from Columbia Law School. I always make sure to follow her on social media at Caroline M. Corbin whenever there's a Supreme Court decision day because I want to make sure my understanding of a case is correct. So it's a pleasure to get to talk to her today. Caroline, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you. I've been a fan since I first crossed your path when I was writing an article about non-believers, and I found your friendly atheist blog. So it's great fun to actually talk to you in person at last. Yes, I'm I'm so excited about this. So I guess I'll just... <laughs> I had a list of questions, and I guess I'll start on a downer. How bad are things right now when it comes to the Supreme Court and church-state separation issues? I think they're as bad as they've ever been, at least since I've been thinking about these topics. This is a Supreme Court that is bent on eviscerating the Establishment Clause to the fullest extent possible. And it's it's really hard to say what actually remains of separation and church and state. And one of the ways it chips away at it is the way that it always privileges religion over competing state interests. So I figured maybe one way to do this, because there is so much to talk about, um, I want to ask you about some of the cases that the Supreme Court recently decided. And let's just try to get through not just what those cases were, but what the decisions will portend for the future. Let me start with uh, 303 Creative. Uh, can you just give us a broad overview of what that case was? And then we'll get into what the Supreme Court decided. Sure, absolutely. It was your standard clash between equality rights and liberty rights. So the basic backdrop is the state of Colorado forbids discrimination in places of public accommodation. And that just means places that are open to the public. So if you're a restaurant or a movie theater or you sell, you know, sweatshirts or websites, and you're open to the general public, the law says you cannot discriminate against anyone based on certain protected characteristics like race and sex and sexual orientation. Um, so that's the backdrop law. Then you had um, Lori Smith, who owned a website company, and she wanted to get into the lucrative wedding market. Uh, however, 
she did not want to make websites for same-sex couples, only straight couples. And that was a problem for her because it was a clear-cut violation of Colorado's law saying you can't discriminate against people based on their sexual orientation. So I she will want get to claim... Pardon? I will get I do want to get into that specific part of it. But just to be clear here, when she says she doesn't want to make wedding websites for same sex couples, was she supposedly theoretically, was she just making a website template that the couple would then fill in the blanks with the date and the time and all that? Or were these like, let me tell let me, Lori, the creator of this website tell you the story of the couple like how how much of her fingerprints would have been on these websites it's not altogether clear uh although in the ultimate decision they seem to limit their holding to websites that are individualized and personalized now here's the thing about her claim her argument was not this would force me to violate my deeply held religious beliefs and therefore I have a religious right to an exemption from this law. Instead, her claim was a free speech claim, saying for the government to force me to make these websites essentially forces me to say, I endorse same-sex marriage. And this is compelled speech because it is contrary to what I believe and therefore violates the free speech clause. Because the free speech clause protects you both from the government censoring what you say, but it also protects you against the government forcing you to say something you don't want to say. So her claim boils down to the government is essentially forcing me to say that I approve same-sex marriages and I most assuredly do not. Is that different from like the also Colorado Baker who was said, I don't want to make a cake for a same-sex wedding, but he was, was he doing that on religious grounds instead? So the original claim in the Masterpiece Cake Shop, same Colorado law, public accommodation open to the public, same conservative white Christian who opposes, not the exact same person, but another conservative white Christian who opposes uh, same-sex marriage. They originally brought both a free exercise, they both both a religious claim and a free exercise claim. In that decision, the Supreme Court decided on very narrow religious grounds. So this case, same kind of clash between religious conservative and anti-discrimination law, but the focus was on the speech claim rather than the religion claim. And might as well bring this up now. There's been reporting that, that came out the day before the case was decided that basically suggested the one same-sex couple that allegedly asked Lori Smith to design a website for them, the guy wasn't in a same-sex couple. He was married you to a woman. for a like, second. There was no... Uh, I think a lot of the response people had is, wait, this case is built on a lie. Why does this lady even have standing to bring this case when it doesn't appear any gay couple was going to her asking her to make a wedding website? How important is that or does it just not matter? Um, you are asking me um, 
as well it's not quite civil procedure so yes again the 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 fact <laughs> to me i'm not as interested in that question because i think the supreme court manipulated the facts sufficiently that we don't have to worry so much about this distortion. But to answer your question, and I'm sorry, I am a con law professor and I can't help myself. I'm always trying to teach a little con law when I can, right? The federal courts are only allowed to decide cases or controversies. That means that the parties actually have to have something at stake in the outcome of the decision. And one argument is, well, she didn't really have anything at stake yet because she had not yet opened her business to wedding websites and no one had actually requested her to create one. And so there was no imminent violation of the law. Um, I haven't, I, I'm not entirely sure about the foundation for that claim, but I will say that it is not unheard of to bring a cause of action before you actually violate the law, right? So it has to be quite likely that you may violate the law. It can't be just a random possibility, but we don't wanna have to force people to actually break the law um, and get into serious trouble before they are able to challenge the law. So there is precedent for bringing these sort of anticipatory claims. The actual details in this case, I'm not as familiar with. Um, although I have to say, um, there is, it, it's not surprising that some people are suspicious that not everything was done in the best of faith. I just don't know enough about it to really say one way or the other. But it does just, sound like even if, uh, let's say she wasn't asked to make a site, uh, even if it turns out that never happened, there was a reasonable uh, assumption that she might have had to in the future. So we got to weigh in on this one way or the other. Yeah, might as well do it now. It's a question of ripeness. Like, was it was it a little too early for her to bring the case or not? And I'm just, it, it's like, that's kind of, that can be a hard call. Fair so, enough. So, um, listen, there's plenty to be up in arms about with the actual decision, so which let's I'm talk, happy to go into. Yeah, so let's uh, talk about that, because I think the question that I'm, I would like to know what the decision was and how broad it is. Um, and that's the question I'm trying to still figure out. How broad is this ruling? Is this applicable to her and her alone, people in Colorado, everyone? Like, how worried should we all be about this, this uh, the ruling? Yeah, and, and it is there. Um, so basically, it means that if you are a business and your product can be characterized as expressive, as conveying some kind of message. Um, and there may be an additional caveat that you have to make individualized, personalized products. As long as you satisfy this criteria, you can refuse people as customers if making an expressive product for them violates what you claim are your deeply held beliefs. So this means that it's not just her who can discriminate against LGBT people trying to get a wedding site. 
it doesn't just mean only website designers can discriminate against LGBT couples who want a wedding ceremony. It could be anyone whose work product that you create for a particular person and can said to be expressive. Now, there's going to be a huge amount of litigation about what counts as expressive. That was my Generally, next question. Generally, it involves <laughs> words. You know, the chances are the court is going to be if you make cakes with slogans on them, if you make T-shirts with writing on them, if you make invitations, if you make anything involving images or words, chances are you are allowed, you have this free speech right to discriminate. And it's not limited to religious people, because again, this is grounded in the free speech clause, not the religion clause. So you don't have a, you don't have to be, you don't have to have a religious basis for your animosity. You could just be homophobic and say, you know, this is contrary to my conscience. And therefore I have a free speech right to refuse LGBT customers in my photography studio. Um, And it's not limited to discrimination against LGBTQ community. Like what's stopping someone from saying, I run a shop that uh, makes t-shirts or whatever, and I saw you walk into my store with a mega hat. Um, I don't know if that's a protected class per se, but like, uh, or it's an interracial couple, and the Bible says no to that based on my interpretation. Like, are you saying that's the next, those are the next batch of lawsuits we're going to see over what are the contours of this? Lawsuit or something else? So under this holding, what it means is if you have an interracial couple that walks into your t-shirt shop and they want a t-shirt of Dungeons and Dragons because they're really into that, you can't refuse them, right? Because that doesn't convey a message contrary to your views. Now, if they want a picture on the t-shirt of their adorable baby... Uh, who's mixed race, and you would argue that making this T-shirt would express approval of uh, mixed race marriages and mixed race children because, you know, you think the races should be separate, then you have a claim. Wow. Well, that would be an expressive, (laughs) right? Assuming that it's an individualized product that you make and the product itself can be described as expressing a message, namely, yay, adorable mixed race babies, um, then then you have a claim under this law. That's I mean, under hor- this ruling. Excuse that's me, horrifying. Ruling. That is horrifying. It is absolutely <laughs> horrifying. I mean, I can't, I mean, and you don't even, again, the, the thing to note is you don't even have to go there to be appalled. I mean, this law makes second-class citizens of all our LGBT friends, families, and colleagues, because it means that they no longer have the right to go into a store and expect to be treated the same as everybody else. They may be turned away, and so they don't get equal access to the same goods and services. And it's certainly an immense insult to their dignity to say that someone can be allowed to turn them away because they disapprove of what they represent. Uh, Um, With spring finally in view, you might be thinking about inviting over some friends for an outdoor meal. I know I'm looking forward to that. And that means you should be thinking about ButcherBox. You can skip the grocery store knowing you have the food you trust in your freezer. 
I know that might sound strange coming from me since I'm vegetarian, but they have a high-quality veggie burger that I absolutely love. They have options for pescatarians, too. The food is high-quality, grass-fed, and free-range. More than anything, it'll give you peace of mind knowing everyone who eats it will enjoy it. You get free shipping, too. New users will receive their choice of two pounds of ground beef, three pounds of chicken thighs, or one pound of premium steak tips for a whole year. Sign up today at butcherbox.com friendly and use code FRIENDLY to choose your free offer and get $20 off. Correct me if I'm wrong on this. Uh, last year, when the Supreme Court said charter schools, private religious, I, I'm sorry, let me correct that, private religious schools in Maine could get access to public funding, um, which was a result uh, the church day crowd did not like. One of the things that they, the legislature did in Maine is basically pass a law that said, okay, fine, we got to give you access to taxpayer money, but if you get it, you can't discriminate against protected classes. And that kind of, uh, it did away with the rotten consequences of that decision. It prevented it from getting worse. I'm, I guess my question is, in the case here, can Colorado's legislature do anything since they keep getting in trouble for this law, or at least the religious right wants to keep fighting this anti-discrimination law, can Colorado legislators do anything to push back against it the other way? What What else can they do? They already passed a law saying if you're open to the public, you can't discriminate. And it was this law that the Supreme Court said violated the, the company's free speech rights. So... I understand like the, the carve around, like when the court says, well, if you fund private schools, you have to fund all private schools, including religious private schools. And then there was something that the legislature can kind do and say, okay, fine. If you're going to use taxpayer money, you best not give it to places that discriminate, right? That's not the setup here. This was just like, this was the law that said you can't discriminate. And the Supreme Court did not mince its words when it said, actually, yeah, you can. You have a free speech right to discriminate under certain conditions. This might be an unfair question to ask you because you're a, a constitutional lawyer and not an activist. But I'm kind of curious. I have seen some rumblings uh, among atheists and others online saying, well, OK, I happen to be an atheist business owner, so and maybe I am in a creative enterprise. So you know what? I am going to discriminate against Christian customers for whatever reason, or I'm a Satanist and I'm doing this not because I want to, but because I want to see what happens uh, if I push this law and use their ruling to perpetuate my own form of bigotry, like our Christian right lawyers going to be like, well, I guess that's okay. Or are they going to cry persecution? Like, do you have any thoughts on those types of challenges where they say, yeah. fine, I'm going to do it to you. See how you like it. I am totally for trying to use existing law for progressive purposes. In fact, one of my most recent papers was trying to make a religious claim that um, certain that, that, that Jewish women in certain circumstances have a religious right to abortion because under Jewish law, there are certain circumstances where an abortion is mandated. And so they, you know, if, if we're going to have super expansive protection for religious believers, 
well, not all religious believers are white conservative Christians. Some of them are other religions and have progressive views. And so, you know, yes, I support that. Uh, a caveat to anyone who wants to do that is, again, the facts... And we'll have to see what actually happens in the lower courts and how this case is developed. But there are arguably two limits on this free speech right to discriminate. First, your product has to be considered expressive. Um, so it's not enough that you're just selling something. It has to be something that arguably conveys a message that you have created and conveys some kind of message. And second, um, and again, I, I'm not 100% sure this was carried through, but it's had to be something that was personalized for the customer. So if you meet those two boundaries, then absolutely your free speech rights ought to be as strong as anybody else's, especially since one of the core principles of the free speech clause is the government should not discriminate based on viewpoint. So if it's going to be protecting conservative Christian viewpoints, it should be protecting other viewpoints as well, including atheist viewpoints. Because again, this does not have to be grounded in religion. It has to be grounded in your beliefs, whatever they are, in your conscience. And so you don't even have that hurdle of, you know, do atheists get the same kind of protection as other religious believers? That's not in the picture for this particular case. It's based on speech and speech alone. Everybody has speech rights. In the decision, in writing for the majority, uh, Justice Neil Gorsuch compared this particular case, Lori Smith making uh, her websites, to the Barnett case involving the Pledge of Allegiance way back when. And that, I think, is something you took particular issue with. Can you explain what Gorsuch said and why that's such a problem? Yeah, I did actually write a whole, I, I had a tweet when I was first uh, skimming the opinion, and then I was so irritated, I wrote a whole blog post on it, and it's up on Dorf on Law. So basically, and I, it involves some First Amendment law, and I'll try not to get too technical about it, but basically the court tried to equate forcing Lori Smith to make her um, business available to everyone on an equal basis to a very famous First Amendment case involving the Pledge of Allegiance. And in that case, the state of West Virginia required children to stand and say the pledge every morning, and certain students objected, and the court ruled in their favor and said the government cannot force you to parrot the government's message when it violates your deeply held convictions. And the Supreme Court said this case is exactly the same, right? The government is forcing Lori Smith to say something that it's like, this is a, this is a case about pure speech and it's forcing her to say something contrary to her deeply held convictions. And there's certainly superficial appeal to this comparison, but if you had any background in free speech law, you would immediately uncover the fallacy. So, so, so let me see if I can try and explain this. So the law in Barnett was basically 
you must say these words. It was a direct regulation of the student's speech. It was a speech regulation and it was trying to impose a particular viewpoint on people. The law at issue in Colorado was not a regulation of speech. It was a regulation of conduct, right? The law didn't say you have to say this particular thing. What it said is you have to do this particular thing or more, uh, more accurately, you cannot do this particular thing, which is discriminate against people. So it was a regulation of conduct um, and the court did not treat it as a regulation of conduct. And you might think, well, is this such a big deal? Yes, it's a huge deal in free speech law because the free speech clause regulates speech. It does not generally regulate conduct, which is not to say it never has anything to do with conduct, right? Because sometimes your conduct can be expressive. Um, and the classic example of that is burning your draft card, right? You're burning something, which is conduct, but you're often expressing a message by doing so. But the, the, um, the seriousness of the, um, of a violation or, or the, the, the level of review the court gives to these regulations of conduct that might affect speech is completely different than the level of scrutiny courts give to things that directly regulate conduct. Um, and so direct regulations of speech trigger what's known as strict scrutiny, which basically means, yeah, we're gonna assume this is unconstitutional unless the government has a really, really compelling justifications for their law. Whereas if it's a regulation of conduct that happens to affect speech, because the conduct may be expressive, it still triggers some, you know, the court's still gonna take a look at it, but it's not gonna presume it's unconstitutional in the same way. And the court didn't do that. It just pretended, it just sort of ignored the whole context of this is a store that is selling something and what the law is trying to do is make sure people don't discriminate against groups of people who have for decades suffered from discrimination. Um, and they falsely treated it like it was a direct regulation of conduct. And their argument was, well, the whole point of this law is to try and you know, remove from the marketplace of ideas hostility toward same-sex marriage. And the answer to that is, no, the purpose of the law is to stop people from discriminating against customers in their stores that they've opened to the public. Is that um, something that offends you more as a con law professor or something you think is an oh, unfair expansion of how we're treating this law in the future, how we're treating free speech rights? There are so many things that offend me about this decision, but the actual, the, the gleeful distortion of existing law Right, because I remember said they, the way they manipulate the law. I mean, again, there's always some play, um, but I think this court really goes beyond acceptable bounds of interpretation 
to get the results they want. And they do things like, you know, they, they didn't just compel it to compelling students saying the pledge. They also, it's like, it's like making an artist create a portrait of somebody they abhor or a, a, a director forcing them to direct a movie, a pro-Nazi movie. And you're like, yeah, directors are not places of public accommodation. Again, this law does not bar discrimination everywhere for all people. It only says if you make the decision to open a store that, you know, when you flip it on open in the morning and open the door and anybody's allowed to walk in, if you decide to have that kind of business, you can't discriminate against people. I have to imagine that Gorsuch and everyone who signed on to that opinion, I mean, criticisms aside, they're smart enough to know the difference and why those metaphors or those analogies fail. Are they doing that to appeal to their base? Are they doing that because they genuinely don't know any better? Like, what do you, is there a reason we know? Why are they doing that? They're doing that that because they um, are required to give reasons for their decision. And it has a surface plausibility if you're not familiar with the law. Um, And and we know that they're, I mean, you know, you probably already did a whole thing on Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. But we know that they're not big believers in hewing closely to the facts of the case. And they obviously don't much care about precedent and they also don't. Right. So they'll do what they need to do to get the decision they want. And I think this is becoming sufficiently apparent to the general public because their reputation has taken a nosedive recently. I mean, the Supreme Court has long been one of the more respected branches of government, but these recent decisions that are so obviously outcome-driven have really undermined the public's faith that they are neutral decision-makers. This was not a question I intended to ask you, but since we're talking about it, as a constitutional law professor, what do you tell your students when it seems like, I mean, if precedent doesn't seem to matter anymore, and if they're distorting the law as it stands so often, like, how do you tell your students? How do you teach your students, like, this is the law. These are the boundaries of the law. This is how we respect the law. How can you do that when this Supreme Court's like, meh, flip the table in the air. Let's see what we can do here. What do you do with that? Yeah, that's a really... Um, I think part of it is teaching them enough about the law so that they're able to differentiate between cases that truly could go either way because there are two lines of precedent that sort of conflict with each other and really you don't know which one and both are reasonable and decisions that really don't follow sort of the rules of decision-making and use these most recent decisions as examples of the latter, as opposed to examples of the former, right? Because the, often the cases that we're reading in law school are not the ones where it was a foregone conclusion, but that it was sort of contested, but usually contested in, within certain bounds. And I think here we're really seeing that those bounds have um, 
you know, with their super majority of very conservative, very religious people, those bounds seem to have been shed. So let me jump to the other big church state case that happened this term, which was uh, Groff versus DeJoy. Uh, we talked about this on the podcast several weeks ago, and I I will take full responsibility. I butchered my explanation of the case. So I'm hoping, can you explain what the case is? And then we will get into what they decided there. Absolutely. Okay. So we've been talking about anti-discrimination law. And one of the major laws that prevent discrimination in the workplace is Title VII. And Title VII says you can't discriminate against people based on protected characteristics at work. And that includes religion. And the way that has been understood is that for religious workers, if they have some kind of accommodation they need in the workplace in order to be able to observe the dictates of their faith, you have to grant them that accommodation unless it imposes an undue hardship on the business. So, for example, if you have a uniform because, you know, the, you're a bus driver and there's a uniform and it includes a hat, but someone has to wear a turban or a hijab, it's like, is that kind of accommodation going to upset the, you know, is that going to impair the bus driver's ability to drive a bus? Probably not. So you think, well, maybe that's the kind of accommodation that wouldn't create an undue hardship and should be granted. But here's the thing. The Supreme Court case that originally interpreted what undue hardship was um, made it really easy to satisfy. It said basically anything that was more than a de minimis cost to the employer was an undue hardship, which meant that they did not have to accommodate the employee. Like so, if it inconveniences the company in any way, We'll side with the company. Is that what de minimis is getting at? Yeah, it was like barely, like just about anything. And, then, and again, different courts interpreted slightly differently. But there were a lot of requests that were being rejected out of hand because the court was like, this is more than de minimis. End of story. Sorry, you don't have to hire this person or you can fire them or whatever. Like, so say a Jewish person wanted to observe the high holidays, which meant that they had to take a day off. And they're like, well, that means, you know, somebody else has to cover for them. That's more than a de minimis cost under the old, arguably under the old rule. And so they would lose their Title VII claim that um, they were discriminated on the basis of their religion. So the question at issue in this case was, are they going to change the standard of what amounts to a um, undue hardship? And sure enough, they did. I mean, with this court right? That was not a surprise. But in our fairness, it was a little lax. What was Groff asking for from the Postal Service? So, okay. So now I would like to point out that um, they did revise the standard, but they did not say that Groff won. What they did is they sent the case back down to the lower courts and said, you need to reconsider this case given this new standard that we've created. And the new standard is, I think, substantial? Yeah, so now it has to be a, a, a sort of a more significant burden on the, the business. Um, and so, of course, the million-dollar question is, well, what are the parameters of this? Like, um, 
So uh, it's hard to it's hard to know, right? Because uh, I, I have sort of mixed feelings. On the one hand, I do think it protects religious minorities in ways they were not protected before, and I think that you know. Given that the whole of society is geared towards Christians, like when we have our days off and holidays, it would be nice if people who are not Christian could also get some of the same benefits that Christians enjoy as a matter of course, because of the way society is structured. Um, On the other hand, it does mean that a lot of really problematic claims that were dismissed out of hand might be taken more seriously and prevail. And the one that I happen to have in mind, oh, because again, there's one other legal curly cue to emphasize, which is one of the questions that the court also had to consider is whether um, hardships on coworkers counted for evaluating there was an undue hardship on the business. Because the the actual language is like undue hardship on the conduct of the business. And so Groff was arguing, it's only on hard, the only thing that counts is hardship to the business, not hardship to coworkers. Because he wanted certain days off. And that meant the business had to replace, had to hire someone or something to take his spot on the holy days. It's, he wanted his Sunday Sabbath off. So he was not a full-time worker. He was sort of someone who was meant to cover, you know, he's like a substitute mail carrier, you know, like substitute teachers. My sense is he was kind of like a substitute mail carrier and he was often scheduled to work on days uh, where he was needed and he wanted all his Sundays off. Well, if he's not working his Sundays, it means his coworkers have to work on Sundays and nobody wants to work on the weekend or almost nobody, right? And clearly nobody in his spot because his supervisor tried to find volunteers and he just couldn't always succeed because people prefer not to work on Sunday for whatever reason. And so that was an obvious undue hardship on his coworkers. Uh, And Groff was trying to argue, well, that doesn't count unless it actually affects mail delivery. And so one of the additional holdings that uh, the majority said was that undue, I mean, any kind of burden on the coworkers don't count unless it actually affects the business. And do you um, have any thoughts about how this will play out now that it's been sent down to lower courts? I, it dep- it will, of course, it will depend on the court, right? So there was a concurrence, and now I, I think it was, I'm confusing, I think it was, maybe it was Kagan, I'm forgetting who's writing these concurrences, and she tries to sort of, uh, mitigate the potential harm of this by saying, well, of course, harm to coworkers affects, right, the conduct of the business. I mean, labor is core to business. In fact, it's often the most important component of a business. Um, but whether how that actually plays out, I don't know. So here's the here's my worst case scenario: um, is that you're going to have some conservative Christian who does not believe in, um, it does not support transgender people and who believes that, you know, God made people man and woman and they never change. Like we need to improve science. Um, but uh, it's going to argue that it viol- their, their religion prohibits them 
from using appropriate pronouns with a transgender colleague, right? And this is not this is not a completely paranoid fear because there are already a whole series of cases where you have school teachers who claim they cannot use the proper pronouns for their transgender students. I'm going to get to that question after we're done. Okay. Yeah. But I'm worried, right? So my great fear is you're going to have a coworker who says my religious combination that I need is to be able to misgender my colleague. And, you know, the colleague is going to be miserable, but still do their job. And so a court's going to be like, yeah, it inflicts a lot of harm on this one individual, but it doesn't affect the conduct of the business because they still showed up for their work. And, you know, because that's what minorities do, right? They show up, they persevere, they have to deal with the discrimination. This ruling could allow that to be okay now. Again, this is my nightmare use of the holding, but it's the holding does not preclude this result. Um, is there anything to be made of the fact that Groff was asking for his Sundays off for religious reasons and maybe someone else in a similar scenario says, well, I want Sundays off because that's the day I spend with my families. Is there any differentiation on those matters for the ruling that came down? Does it matter that he asked for a religious accommodation and not just a personal conscious accommodation? Well, again, the whole... Um, it's t- the Title VII is protecting discrimination based on religion. So only the person who says, I need an accommodation for my religion is entitled to any accommodation under Title VII. So it's going to be a bummer for the non-religious people who now may find themselves being forced to cover for their religious colleagues. Um, I want to ask, I, can I, I just want to add, right. And again, that might make some of them a little resentful. And so the question is, is that the kind of hit to worker morale that will be considered in evaluating whether there's an undue burden? I, I would think yes, but another caveat in the opinion is that worker morale does not matter if it stems from hostility to a particular religion, to religion in general, or to the very idea of providing religious accommodations. And in some sense, this limit um, is a good thing in that if you're, you know, suffer from Islamophobia, you don't like Muslim people, and you're really pissed that your coworker is allowed to wear a hijab because you just don't like, because you're just a bigot and it makes you mad. Like that doesn't count. But the other thing I worry about is if you're not a religious person and suddenly you find yourself working a lot more Sundays to accommodate your religious colleagues, is that the kind of thing that some court is going to say, well, that's just hostility to the very idea of any religious accommodations? Um, rather than saying, no, it's not hostility to religious accommodations, it's hostility to the fact that you lost your Sunday. Right? So and, that's, and that's we don't another know how opening. Play out yet. Yeah. That's another right opening in the law 
for some detrimental outcomes. Um, beyond this Supreme Court's uh, decisions in June, I guess, uh, what religious liberty issues do you see coming down the pipeline? What should we be paying attention to in the coming year, assuming the court's makeup doesn't change anytime soon? Oh, gosh, I must confess, I haven't looked at the upcoming year. I've been if, if not specific cases, are there general areas where you think, okay, this is an issue that's probably going to be in front of the court soon, or these are the big church-state separation problems that this court may tackle? Or is it just other cases like this where they just chip away at giving religious conservatives some sort of ability to override free speech decisions in the past? Um, I will probably think of a list of issues after sure. I say goodbye <laughs> to you. <laughs> no, that's but okay. I think, I think at least one that comes to mind that is somewhat still resolved is now that you have so much mandatory funding to religious organizations, the question is whether states or the government can make the maneuver that you pointed out earlier, which is saying, fine, we understand we have to fund religious and secular alike, but whether you're religious or secular, we're not going to give you money if X, if you discriminate or if you do this or that. Um, I think they answered this maybe a little bit in Fulton versus city of Philadelphia, but I don't know if they have squarely addressed this particular clash between religion and equality. And I fear that maybe the next round of privileging the desires of conservative white Christians over everybody else, which is not only do you have to fund religion, but they can still discriminate with taxpayer money. That's horrifying as well. It is horrifying, <laughs> right? And again, um, as you, and I do worry, like, uh, I mean, this is more of a minor issue, but I, I wrote about it. It's like the example I'm giving is sort of the, the, the religious right to uh, misgender students in the classroom or co-workers at work or just what kind of protection is this bigotry going to get? So let's talk um, about that. You wrote a paper on this where basically the question was, do public school teachers have a First Amendment right to refuse to call students by their pronouns? Because their argument would be the government is controlling my speech by forcing me to like acknowledge a trans identity. Um, what was your, you basically ran through, here's what the concern is and here's your legal take on what the answer is. What was your take on that? Is that, yeah, a free, so it, is that a violation of their free speech rights? So again, this is another example of where um, you have sort of an anti-discrimination policy and someone is saying, I have these religious beliefs that are discriminatory and for the government to force me to act in a non-discriminatory manner is essentially compelling me to express a message that's contrary to my deeply held religious beliefs. So they have that in common. So again, I, I imagine we're going to see again. Oh, I now an answer is we're going to see a lot of litigation about the scope of 303 creative, I think. So I don't know how soon that's going to come up to the Supreme Court, but certainly all the lower courts are going to be figuring out 
you know, what counts as expressive and does it have to be individualized? But going back to this particular question, yeah, they, I mean, just, no, no, they don't. They don't have a right. They just don't. I mean, it's just an awful, like, I think you should be, you're a teacher. Like, it certainly violates all their, um, codes of conduct it violates all their right if you look at all the the ethics code for teachers it's like doctors do no harm right and this is a about as harmful as you can get as a teacher is to intentionally misgender them as a free speech analysis like the argument is um and again this is a little technical but the idea is that if you're a public school teacher and you're working for the government, right? And you're doing your job and getting paid for that job. That speech is actually not considered your speech. It's really considered the government speech. And the government can control your speech, its own speech, right? So, so the for any if there are any lawyers out there, it's considered speech pursuant to official duties. And speech pursuant to official duties is government speech that's not protected by the free speech clause. So basically, if the government hired you to do your job and you're doing your job, then you do not have the same kind of free speech rights that you would when you're at home. That's I mean, so you're saying the teachers can't argue in that situation. The government's forcing me to go against my religious beliefs or something. Is That sounds very similar to like the Kim Davis you're a well, county clerk. You got to sign a marriage license. No. Nope. Yeah. Again, it depends if they're bringing a speech claim or a religion claim. Because if the speech claim, the speech doctrine is fairly straightforward. And and even per, even assuming that they do have from free speech rights, right? For public employees, there's kind of a balancing test between their free speech rights and the government's interests. And the government interest here are so weighty um, because having a teacher misgender student undermines all the goals of education that you can imagine. Um, One of the most basic of which is you have to, you can't discriminate against students in the classroom. Um, That even assuming they had free speech rights, and I argue that certainly in the classroom, they don't. then this, the school should win because it's very disruptive to the educational process. And so even if public employees have free speech rights, they still don't win if their speech is going to completely upset the, um, the government work site, which in this case is school and is completely disruptive to a transgender's education to have a teacher intentionally misgender them day after day. Um, This is a separate paper you wrote, not trying to totally change the subject here, but it was about the Pledge of Allegiance, which you've written a lot about. But um, basically, everyone kind of knows at this point, students do not have to say the Pledge of Allegiance if they don't want to. The government can't force them to say it. But in Texas and Florida, the law says students need their parents' permission to get out of saying it. And the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals upheld those laws. What's going on there? <sighs> What's going on there is um, the 11th Circuit is a big fan of the Pledge of Allegiance. Um, the justification, okay, this is this is particularly hilarious if it ever gets up to the Supreme Court. Uh, 
because the justification was a substantive due process rights of parents' right to control the upbringing of their children. And if the phrase substantive due process rings any bells for you, it's because it's the same right that was at issue in the abortion decision, right? The right to abortion was also a substantive due process right. In other words, this is not a right that's specifically listed in the Constitution, but it was a right that some court at some point found was sufficiently fundamental that it should be protected by the Constitution. And so the courts held, yeah, we get that it violates students' free speech rights, but you know, parents have rights, and this is trying to support parents' rights to have their children, to, to raise their children as they see fit, which of course is, is rubbish. And it's so, it's, it's obviously rubbish because the law doesn't say, um, parents, we want you to, we want to know what, whether you want your child to say the pledge or not. Please let us, you know, please sign this form and let us know what your option is. The law says they have to say it unless you are allowed to opt out. So this is not a law that is actually interested in parents making a decision about whether or not their child has to say the pledge. This is a law about trying to force a child to say the pledge. Um, and only if a parent is okay with them not saying it, are they allowed to opt out. So it seems really like a pretty straightforward violation of a kid's free speech rights. Yeah, and right, and and just right, it, it's not even handed in its treatments of parents' control of what their kids do in school, and and this is even aside from the fact that every other litigation where a parent wants to control what happens in the school has been rejected because the supreme because courts generally say, listen, you have the right to decide whether or not your kid goes to public school or private school, but once you send them to public school right? You got to just abide by the public school curriculum and decisions. Like you don't get to decide what they study, what they read, what they, right? It, it's just parental rights generally do not extend into parents circumventing school decisions, um, except in this one special case um, where they want to try and get around the famous free speech law case that says you can't force children. They're like, well, this is one way we can force children. And, and the 11th Circuit was like, yes. I mean, it's not an accident that the law is in Florida and Texas. Sure. Um, you mentioned this earlier, but uh, will the expansion of all these religious liberty rulings uh, will it be a useful tool for non-Christians trying to push for more progressive interpretations of the law? If a Jewish woman says, my religion says I can have an abortion, yes. will that argument work? Um, no. Um, <laughs> because why? Because why? I mean, let me reframe that. It will work in some lower courts, right? It depends on who they're before. And it should work. Because again, we have ex the, the Supreme Court has created extremely expansive protections for religious observers, right? And the, the law is basically now, or or under the a statute, Religious Freedom Restoration Acts, where which basically say, listen, if you say this is a major burden on your religion, 
then you're exempt from the law unless the law passes strict scrutiny. Again, unless the government can offer really compelling justification for its law. And there's no other way that they can accomplish their ends other than by imposing on your religious liberty. And, and like they've granted accommodation, like they've said, Hobby Lobby, a store doesn't have to cover contraception because they think it causes abortions, even though it doesn't. Right. They even said that they even suggested that it's a, you know, religious groups that are exempt from providing contraception. They were like even signing a paper saying that you don't want to provide the contraception is a substantial burden because you think it facilitates. I mean, just the most outlandish. They'll go uh, overboard to protect conservative Christian views about all of this stuff. If a conservative Christian says this is a substantial burden on my religious practice, they don't they don't doubt the religiousness of it. They don't doubt the sincerity of it, and they don't doubt the substantiality of it. But they're just like, we believe you. We believe that it's religious. We believe that you're sincere. We believe that it's a terrible burden on your religious conscience. Please have this accommodation. We don't care if we're denying health care to women or equal treatment to the LGBT community. Please take this exception to the wall, right? But when these progressive Jewish or non-Christian or progressive Christians attempt to use the same law, you don't think they're going to go with any of those? Uh, they're not going to give them the benefit know. of the doubt. I don't know what I don't know how. Uh, but honestly, do you imagine the Supreme Court saying, oh, absolutely, this Jewish woman can get an abortion, even though her state has an abortion ban? <laughs> I mean, no, not at all. But I'm the cynical right. so one here. <laughs> there are a lot of different ways they can say, well, it's she's not really sincere. This is a political belief and she's just pretending it's um, uh, it's religious. Right. So she attacked the religiosity of it or she attacked the sincerity of it. Uh, we don't really believe. OK, even assuming it's religious. You know, we don't really believe you're that religious. You're a reformed Jew and reformed Jews are not real Jews. I mean, OK, they can't say it like that, but you they'll know. find a nice way to say all of you. That's the fear that they're going to find an excuse to dismiss yeah. those things or in a way they say, never well, this would. This is just something you're it's not really that big of a deal. Or they might they might not want to touch that because that would really cause confusion in their existing doctrine. Um they might just say, well, you don't have standing, <laughs> or they might find some procedural defect. Um, or they may say, well, setting all that aside, you know, the government has compelling interests for its abortion ban. Um, what is more important than potential life and um, or life? Like, never mind that that is itself a religious proposition that violates right. the Establishment Clause. Um but they'll say, you know, they're really important. This might infringe on your religion a little bit, but the state's interests are so overwhelming in this case. This is an exception. Like, just like That's they said, abortion is an exception to substantive due process. They're going to be like, abortion is the exception to a request for a religious exception from abortion bans. Um this just a couple really quick ones here. Uh, what's your prediction since you're in the business of predictions? I'm sure uh, for like the next big change 
to SCOTUS, barring like an unexpected Scalia-like fatality or something? Like, what do you think would be the next big change? Is it going to be someone retires? Do you have an idea uh, of who that could be? Or do you think it's just, uh, we just got to wait until after the election, the next one, to figure out what happens next? I have no idea. I mean, think of the last three changes we had and how unexpected and they un- and how they unfolded in ways that people did not anticipate. I certainly don't know who's going to be the next turnover. Fair enough. And then one last question for you. When you yeah. get together with your uh, law school colleagues or you are around other constitutional lawyers, what are the things you are all talking about as, as it relates to these issues? What are the things you are all arguing about? What are the issues at the top of your mind that maybe the rest of us who only read articles about it in, in mainstream places are talking about? Like, what is it that concerns all of you? I mean, many of our concerns are exactly the same as everybody else's. These decisions are going to hurt people. Um, these decisions are creating a hierarchy based on race or based on sexual orientation. Uh, this this church, this court is clearly favoring one particular group of people over others, and it's undermining its legitimacy by doing so. So I think we have all those same reactions. And then we also have the constitutional reactions that I got into a little bit. I'm sorry, which like, can you believe what they did to the doctrine? Like, how are they ignoring this very obvious difference? Or how are they not just rejecting precedent, but rejecting the precedent on precedent like they did in Dobbs? Or like, how do they think that or how is it they just blithely distort the facts in a way that they get a question that's so much easier for them to answer in the way they want. So so part of it is the same reactions as everybody else. And part of it is just horror at what they're doing to constitutional law, which is something that generally constitutional law professors really care about. Um, so you're all having the same reactions as the rest of oh, us, which is what the hell? Yes. <laughs> Well, with that, uh, for anyone interested in hearing more from you, reading up on your latest papers, anything like that, where can people find you? Um, oh, so um, if you Google my name, Caroline Muller Corbin, you'll probably come across my webpage at my law school, which is the University of Miami School of Law. Or we'll have a link your, to all of that in the show notes also or for my, that my and SSRN your papers. page, <laughs> uh, which is sort of the page that lists all the articles I write. Uh, some of them are more accessible than others, but some of them are fairly accessible. My 14 year old occasionally will read one and be like, oh, I, I kind of understood that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> That's impressive, though. That's good. Um, All of those links will be in the show notes. And I don't know if you're still using Twitter or by the time we publish this, it'll be destroyed in a blazing fire. But uh, again, your Twitter handle is Caroline M. Corbin. Where else? I'm on Mastodon now. (laughs) And I'm trying to also, I don't know about the alternatives. So no one knows about any of the alternatives at this point. Who knows? But you can uh, definitely Google your name, Caroline Mala Corbin. And again, all the links we just discussed will be in the show notes. Thank you again for your time and your expertise. I really appreciate it. It was, it was great fun. And uh, I hope we get to have another conversation sometime again in the future. And maybe, who knows, there might actually be a good decision. 
nah. I look forward. I, I, I genuinely, I look forward. <laughs> I am so looking forward to the day when I can talk to my friends who are experts in constitutional law and have them happy about the decisions that have come down. Like, genuinely happy instead of hey there was something interesting one nugget of some whatever gorsuch yeah. threw at us i uh, mean right now we're just hoping for not awful yeah it's a it's a lot of playing defense right now which is a hard place to be in a hundred percent of the time but uh thank you for the work you do and uh, everyone should go check out your papers and the website thank you again thanks for having me